This is 1A. I'm Jen White. Tuesday, September 13th, marks the final primaries of the year in a season that's been both surprising and predictable. In Ruby Red, Kansas, voters resoundingly rejected an amendment that would have removed abortion protections from the state constitution. But in Ruby Red, Wyoming, moderate GOP Representative Liz Cheney lost her re-election bid in a shellacking that surprised no one, including Cheney herself. So far, 91 percent of Trump-backed candidates have won their open primaries, and 40 percent of challengers from both parties have beat incumbents. That's according to a recent tally from NPR. We've got two months until the midterms. What does this all mean for the fate of both parties in November? And what can this political moment tell us about the future of the country beyond 2022? After the break, we get into it with two political strategists and an analyst from the Cook Political Report. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To be a part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us is Jessica Taylor. She's the Senators and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report. Jessica, great to have you back. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Rena Shaw. She's a GOP political strategist and commentator. She was a former senior aide to GOP Congressman Scott Garrett and later GOP Congressman Jeff Miller. She spent over a decade advising Republican campaigns. Rena, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. And Maria Cardona. She's a Democratic political strategist and principal at Dewey Square Group. That's a political consulting firm in D.C. She's also the founder of Latinovations. That's a news group focused on politics in the Latino community. Maria, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So, Maria, how do you think Democrats have done so far this primary season? I think they have done well. And in fact, We have some momentum at our back. I think our fortunes have really switched in the past several months. If you had asked six months ago whether Democrats were enthusiastic about the midterm elections and our prospects for keeping at least one of the chambers of uh, Congress, you know, everyone would say no. But right now, uh, Democrats are feeling very good. They're feeling optimistic. Um, about what has happened in terms of the legislative wins and accomplishments of the administration and what Democrats have been able to pass. The, uh, con- the, all of the candidates across the board, especially for the Senate, I think we feel very good about where they are. They're raising a lot of money. They're outraising their opponents. And I think the momentum is at our back. Now, like you said, it's two months until the election. A day is a lifetime in politics. Anything can happen. And so what I would say to my Democratic friends is to not take anything for granted. We have to get out there and really put our noses to the grindstone, talking about the messages that voters really care about. And this issue of abortion rights, Roe v. Wade, taking away our privacy, our freedom, our liberties, the threats to democracy, all of that have become front and center in addition to the economic issues that voters care about. So I think all of those combined have put us in a very, very good position. Rena, what about you? What's your read, your read on how Republicans have performed so on how Republicans have performed so far? Well, I, I want to look at this thing as a very big picture. And I, I think one big takeaway for me is that perhaps a reason that Trump-backed candidates are doing somewhat poorly is that some of them aren't doing a lot of retail campaigning. Now, 
former President Trump could get away with that because he's Trump. But people like J.D. Vance in Ohio are not Trump. And so I think when you're you're looking at races like the one in Ohio, and then you look uh, at the Senate side and you see these very Trumpian Senate candidates, they're having issues, whether it's Herschel Walker or Dr. Mehmet Oz, for different reasons, of course. But again, they're not doing that retail politicking. And what do you mean by and, retail politicking? Just explain you know, that. Really being out there shaking hands with the voters, they're, they're being uh, perhaps too concerted in what they're trying to show to the public. And I think of Dr. Mehmet Oz with that. We, we all remember the sort of crudité moment with him in a grocery store. And, and that, very, that very big difference was felt. I, I think that was a pivotal moment in his campaign. And then you look at J.D. Vance, too. He seems to really live on Twitter. I don't think that is going to work in Ohio. Again, um, Trump can get away with certain things, but these candidates are not Trump. And I think they're taking that for granted. But that's just one small point here. I think the bigger thing is that the GOP clearly had no real plan for post-Roe, despite talking about overturning it for about five decades here. And so there's a lot that's happened over these many months that I think complicates things from Ohio to Georgia, what's happening to candidates, whether they're Trumpian or non-Trumpian, and then take it to the GOP governors, for example. The non-Trump-loving GOP governors are also, in my opinion, doing really quite well. A lot happening here. So I don't think it's um, really fair to paint with a broad brush about the demise of the GOP. You see a lot going wrong, but then you see some points where things seem to be serving the party well. Jessica, some outcomes were less surprising than others this primary season. But for you, what were the big moments that defied expectations? Well, I think in Georgia, um, particularly, which we were talking about earlier, um, that really Brian Kemp seemed to be kryptonite against Trump's uh, endorsement against him, where he just absolutely crushed um, David Perdue in that primary. And he's sort of the one that survived. And I really think that's something that's helping him in this general election rematch with Stacey Abrams. We rate that race as lean Republican at this point. He has led pretty consistently. And I think that separation from Trump um, is helping him in, you know, a pretty evenly divided state that uh, Biden only won by three-tenths of a point. I think the other thing that is surprising to me is just how some of these Democratic incumbents, particularly in the Senate, um, have uh, are overperforming Biden's approval numbers. We, we look at that a lot and see that as sort of a predictor because really Biden's approval ratings didn't start going back up until pretty recently. I mean, it's still not, he's still not in excellent territory and even in worse places in the state. But you're seeing some Democrats outrun him, you know, uh, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania by nine or 10 points, um, Mark Kelly by about seven uh, in Arizona. And the fact that Trump really did pick all of these challengers they're up against. Um, and really, they did sort of fritter away the summer. I think someone like J.D. Vance in Ohio kind of assumed that, okay, winning the primary was tantamount to winning the general election when you look at where the political environment was at the beginning of May. I mean, this was the very first primary that was held um, in Ohio that really sort of showed where Trump's, Trump was able to sort of muscle out these uh, in his preferred candidates. Um, but, you know, taking a lot of the summer off, same thing with Dr. Oz traveling overseas and to Palm Beach and different things. And you've got to work in this way. You're, they're, raise, they're falling behind in money being raised. Um, 
that Trump endorsement doesn't always come with the promise of money because Trump has his own pack and he's not really sharing a lot of it. And even the Peter Thiel back candidates, you know, the billionaire sort of libertarian leaning PayPal co-founder there who's backed Vance in Ohio and then Blake Masters in Arizona, that money, he's not giving any more of it. So it's sort of and I think that's where you see this tension right now between McConnell realizing that these bad candidates have – or weaker candidates have really sort of jeopardized what should have been a pretty, you know, favorable environment for them yeah, you know, I, back I, in the spring. Yeah, I, I want to dig into that tension a little later. But, you know, as we mentioned, 91 percent of Trump-backed Republicans have won their open primary so far. And, and here's a clip of President Biden speaking about Trump Republicans during a primetime speech earlier this month. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. <clears throat> not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. So Jessica Biden says here that most Republicans don't support Trump. Is that true? In primaries, though, they do when you get the base voters, or at least that is key to winning uh, a percentage that you need. In most of these races, the key here is... You don't have to win 50% unless you're in a runoff state like Georgia. So getting 35, sometimes less percent, that translates to a win. And so they've won less than – they've won the plurality, but they haven't won a majority. And that's who Republicans then are saddled with in these primaries. And again, I think it goes back to a lot of those suburban – you know, we've talked about them for election cycle after election cycle now, but they've been critical in 2018 and in 2020 – and the question is, will some of these uh, more controversial nominees, will those voters that maybe they voted for Trump in 2016 switch to Biden in 2020? They don't love Biden. They sort of saw it as a choice between a lesser of two evils. And some of those may not have voted, may not have been planning to vote until something like the Dobbs decision came down. And and I agree that really Republicans didn't have a plan for when that could happen Um uh, you know, even though the oral decisions, you know, months before that even seemed like this was the way things were heading in a similar way that they really didn't have a plan to replace Obamacare after they, you know, won the presidency and controlled both House of Congress in 2016. Um, and so I, I do think it just comes down to that, that who comes out to vote is going to be so critical. And we started off this cycle with Republicans having a clear enthusiasm gap, and that has narrowed and evened. CNN has recently reported there's been Republican infighting over primary strategy, particularly between Senators Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott. Rena, what's at the heart of that infighting? Well, I think there's that tension, of course, between how much allegiance do we still show to former President Trump and are we ready to move on? And of course, we've seen in uh, Leader McConnell this this desire at certain points to want to move on from Trump, but it feels as if the chokehold is somehow still there. And this this infighting is um, is really about, you know, what's what's 
taken place over so long here. Republicans have been so good about falling in line. And uh, much has been said over the past few years about will there be a third party that, that comes out of the current Republican Party? Is this current Republican Party dead in its form? And I think when you hear these Republican senators fighting, um, you every time there's that, that notion that maybe a third party could uh, exist here and it could be realistic. But again, I'm such an advocate for ranked choice voting that I think that it is the most realistic third party option that we have. But one thing I would say about the senators is this, is that they've got to figure out how to do better for Republicans whose voices have not been heard across the country, because this tit for tat is truly how American democracy ends. They, they've not been able to unify behind this big, thoughtful, substantive theme about what really can unite us and what can help Republicans win. Uh, and I, I frankly think Republicans can win by emphasizing the power of local, um, local, you know, real local po po parties and people. Uh, and that's been a theme throughout American history. Why they're not going for that uh, is really confusing in this Ma moment. Maria, I want to turn to, to Democrats. The economy hasn't been on Democrats' side. Inflation fell 0.6% in July, but it remains at 8.5%, according to the Labor Department. And a recent Gallup poll found that 85% of Americans say the economy is an extremely or very important voting issue for them. So what, if anything, can Democrats do to soften the blow of this in November? I think that's already happening, Jen. Uh, what you are seeing is that the falling gas prices are really boosting um, Democrats' momentum going into the midterm elections. The uh, fact that we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, that we're actively talking about it at every opportunity that we get. There are ads running about it. There is information getting out to the voters about what that piece of legislative success is doing for everyday families, how it's reducing their energy costs, how it's reducing their costs uh, when whenever they go to the grocery store. I think all of that is really helping Democrats. And, and frankly, inflation is uh, being reduced. The inflationary pressures are going down, according to economists. So I think all of these things are happening at exactly the right time. But I'll also point out, like I mentioned earlier, in addition to economic priorities, threats to democracy has become a priority issue for Democrats. You're seeing it in poll after poll after poll. I think that the January 6th committee hearings really made an impact in the way that I think Republicans did not foresee. The Cook Political Report has projected the GOP will gain between 10 and 20 House seats in November, and that's down from as many as 35 seats before Roe v. Wade, which was struck down in June. Jessica, briefly, why has this ruling been such a galvanizing force for Democrats this election season? But because you see it, it's not just a Republican issue. You see it cross party lines and really motivate women, especially we've seen women increasingly in the past two months registering in astounding new numbers, particularly younger women. You saw what happened in Kansas in a very in a conservative state that really mobilized a lot of people to come out in what was really a lower key primary. There were no there was no real primary at the gubernatorial level or anything to drive a lot of turnout. So it really was this abortion issue. And again, it is really an unprecedented step where a right was taken away from many women in the way that they view it. It's helping the enthusiasm gap for Democrats across the board. But because it was sent back to the states, you have places like Michigan, um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and very close Senate races where Democrats see this as an advantage. And we see that in polling. But it's 
it becomes real. This is no longer a theoretical thing that we're talking about when you see, you know, a 12-year-old that's been uh, raped trying to get an abortion when you have some of these Republican candidates that don't support any exceptions. Um, I think the majority of the country is somewhere in the middle. Now, we are seeing Republicans really try to say that, you know, Democrats are more extreme because they don't favor any restrictions into, you know, the into the third trimester and different things. And um, a lot of those are unique circumstances. But mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, it, it, it is, I think, a real issue right now that you are seeing in the news and that, you know, if, that, that real, women really feel that fear. I want to play a clip from Oregon's GOP governor's debate. Here's candidate Christine Drazen responding to a question about, about abortion. I have never shied away from my pro-life values. haven't. But you can't really have it both ways. So the folks on the stage with me today are saying two things that a woman's right to choose is protected in Oregon, that it's in Oregon statute, and they're the ones that put it there. And they're also saying that a woman's right to choose is potentially at risk in Oregon if you elect a pro-life governor. Both of those things cannot be true without legislative action. Can't be. So as I have stated previously, I will be a governor that follows the law. I will not bypass Oregon's laws. I will actually enforce them uniformly, whether people in Portland like it or not. Irina, you've been frustrated with how some Republicans have handled questions about abortion, but this is a response that really stuck out to you as being what you'd like to see from GOP candidates. Why? This to me was just so brilliant in so many ways, because here's a person that is offering themselves up for public service. And they're saying that this is my closely held set of values, but I am willing to follow the law. I'm not going to hide from my own values, but I will enforce the laws that we have on the books uniformly. I will not bypass them. That to me right there says something. It gets right to the heart of the matter here is that there's going to be a lot of, um, tension. People find themselves on the side of the issue pretty mixed up sometimes. And I'm talking about on the right. Uh, you know, look, today's Republican Party, yes, the vast majority are, you know, Christian evangelical voters that that have many of them, also Catholic voters, let's not forget, single issue voters that wanted to see this overturn, that it was uh, almost a fantasy uh, come to real life. But there's also a very large swath that really has believed for a long time in being anti-abortion personally. So for example, I am one of those voters. I'm anti-abortion for myself, but I am pro-choice for other women. And I remember the first time I said that out loud in a public place, somebody said, that's the Mario Cuomo answer. And I said, okay, but to me, that seems practical because if Republicans are truly the freedom-loving party, and I was came up in Republican politics thinking I didn't want the government in my bedroom, my backyard, or my bank account. So why wouldn't I want the freedom to do what I want to do with my own body? Well, Jess, and, I'm curious whether that kind of messaging resonates with voters. I think that in unique states like Oregon, where there is a law on the books, Nevada, where that is also codified into law, um, I think it does take some of the pressure off for Republicans where you can say, listen, that this has been decided. It's been decided in many cases by a referendum or different things. So it kind of maybe removes it more of an issue. I mean, Christine Drazen there is in a really interesting three-way race. Um, She doesn't have to get a majority of the voters, but if she can shore up Republican voters, she has a very good shot of winning because there is an independent in the race that could end up taking slightly more from the Democrats. So we are starting to see this. I'm not sure if we have seen reflected enough whether this 
is polling well. Um, I know that Republicans, a lot of you're seeing that um, you saw Blake Masters even come out in Arizona with with a similar type ad. Um, but I also think when you have a woman candidate that's talking about it in this way, it it could per- perhaps resonate a little better. But, um, you know, again, I, I think polling in the coming weeks now that we're hearing this messaging, I think will be interesting. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to get a quick round table, um, just help or hurt answer. We got this tweet from Catherine. I'm a Democrat in Ohio, and I am praying that Trump's endorsement of Mike DeWine will end up hurting him and helping Nan Whaley. What does your panel think? Rena, what do you think? Help or hurt? I, I think it hurts DeWine, actually, to have a Trump de- endorsement. I, I really do. Maria, what about you? I absolutely agree. It goes to this issue of connecting that candidate with the extremist MAGA agenda that, frankly, voters rejected in 2018, rejected in 2020, and I believe they will reject in 2022 in November. And Jessica, not so much the help or hurt here, but can you tell us how that race is shaping up? This is one we still have rated likely Republican. I actually think it helps him because Trump won the state by eight. Um, and I think, again, it's really hard to knock off an incumbent in this way. Dwine notably did not get it in the primary. He was below 50 percent. But I think because all of, a lot of the focus is being zapped up by the Senate race where you have an open seat that is a better opportunity. And I think the candidate really matters a little bit more in that instance and why you are seeing with uh, Tim Ryan having running such an excellent campaign. Um, versus Vance that has been, you know, anemic and is trying to sort of get restarted. So I just still see the fundamentals of the state that this is, um, you know, and we've seen closer polling in, in a state like Ohio where it looked close even in 2020, but it ended up being, you know, not very close in the end for Republicans. So I still think Ohio fundamentally, you have just a lot of white working class voters in, in that state that is just hard for those are the voters that Trump won over and that uh, Democrats have got to sort of battle for to try to try to win back. But I think just the demographics of a state like Ohio are hard. We got this email from Dave who says not all Republicans are MAGA. However, there are those who had the opportunity to hold a president who obstructed justice, abused the power of the office and led an insurrection accountable. They felt their duty to the people. And here's a message left for us in our inbox. You're either voting for the forces of democracy, that's pretty much large D democratic as well. You're voting for people who uphold constitutional law, American institutions, American democracy, or you're voting for people who are corrupt, uh, evil, uh, hate everyone, and pretty much want to run the country and everything about our society exactly the way they want, pretty much adds up to voting Capital D Democratic or Capital D Republican. The Republican Party is dead. Rena and Maria, I want to get both your responses to that message with a reminder that 147 Republican lawmakers did vote to overturn the election. But Maria, I'll come to you first. You know, I wouldn't put it in such stark terms as the caller did, but I do think that message reflects this really massive fear and concern that has bubbled up to the top of the polls recently for voters that putting Republicans in power really would represent a threat to democracy. 
And while I completely agree with President Biden that not all Republicans are ultra-extremist MAGA Republicans that are that threat to democracy, those who are not have not been vocal enough or have not had backbone enough to stand up to Trump and to those who do believe that the election was a fraud and who do believe in Trump's election lies. And that all of that put together goes to the message of, of the caller, which is that is a huge threat to our democracy, which is why we should not put Republicans in power and test it out. Because if a lot of the Republicans that won in the primaries are election deniers, they will be put in positions where they can actually commit shenanigans that could overturn free and fair elections if they don't believe those elections went the way they wanted to. And that's a huge threat for us. Rena, what about you? In these past few years, it's felt like the litmus test has been, are you for Trump uh, or you're against us and you're not a Republican? And that just is not fair, but it's what's become the norm, unfortunately. And, and what I've seen, especially in the past couple of years, is a great many candidates feeling like it's just not worth the fight unless you're going to fall in line. Uh, because we all know how much money is tied to our politics and who gets elected and who makes it further. And so I see... Um, Look, this this feeling uh, of frustration in in many Republicans, whether it's Mid Atlantic, Southern, or Western, but largely Western and Mid Atlantic Republicans I speak to, who think you know there's got to be something better that we do. We cannot be this party of no. We cannot be this party that doesn't hold um, Democrats accountable for spending, for example, fiscal conservatism. Where it, has it gone? And I think that is a feeling uh, for so many of uh, Republican voters I talk to is that I'm going to be homeless unless I put my faith behind some of these Republican candidates that are out there that are telling me that they'll do the work when they get there. Uh, but unfortunately, all we're seeing is this continued um, sensation behind the Trump family brand. And so uh, I really don't know what it's going to take for the divorce to become complete. It's going to take years, I believe. Uh, and I think it'll take voters punishing Republican candidates at the ballot box continually. Midterms are presidential. Jessica, how are Americans thinking about voting for the values of democracy itself during the November election? It is something that we've seen move up in polling. And I do think the January 6th hearings and the raid at Mar-a-Lago has brought that more into attention. And, and I think it's something that sort of is an amalgamation of things that has helped Democrats really sort of close this gap, doing better on the generic ballot, doing better when it comes to enthusiasm. However, I still think that it's this, this, election, this election, I think, is now going to be less about inflation than the economy, but I still think it is the number one issue and one that, um, you know, is still very volatile. The gas prices go back up. What happens, you know, you can point to good economic indicators, certainly, but if you have voters that are paying more for groceries, can't get... Um, you know, supplies because of supply chain issues and different things. I just think that is one that sort of is still hard and still plays into Republicans' favor. Um, but it is an issue, I, I think, abortion a little bit more so, but these democratic issues, uh, democracy issues, I do see rising up. Um, but I still don't think it's the dominant issue necessarily. Uh, Jessica, primary season isn't over quite yet. There's still races in New Hampshire and Delaware tomorrow. What will you be watching there? 
The New Hampshire one is the big one for me. This is the last Senate piece we've been waiting for with who will take on Democratic, Democrat Maggie Hassan. Um, her own approval numbers have been low. Um, you know, this is a state that Biden still won by about seven points. But um, again, Republicans were very high on this race at the beginning because they really thought that the popular governor, popular Republican governor, Chris Sununu, was going to run. That did not happen. They were sort of left with a B and C cast of characters. But it, the mo- one that they're most worried about is um, – is Don Balduck, who ran in the last election, did not win the did not win the primary, um, but he's running again. He has uh, retired an army brigadier general, but he's had some controversial statements, bought into you know some conspiracy theories, um, and sort of the we see the establishment coalescing behind State Senate President Chuck Morris, who's far more of a traditional Republican. Sununu endorsed him last week to sort of give him a boost. Um, Trump has not weighed in here as he as, in, as he did in other major Senate races. Does he decide to do that today, sort of at the 11th hour? We'll see. Um, Balduck has been winning, has been leading in the polls. Um, but I, Republicans I talked to in the state last week really think that it's that Morris is surging and the, the polls aren't capturing that. So this race would be more competitive with Morris. But if you have Balduck that uh, wins this nomination, this is one that I think could sort of fall off uh, Republican targets because of another place where they have a weak, controversial candidate. Okay, I just need a sentence from each of you in these final 30 seconds. I just want to know what you're watching for over these next two months. Rena? I'm, I am watching what happens to Oz, Herschel Walker, and J.D. Vance. I think this will tell us how they operate will tell us so much about what's going to happen uh, to the future of the party. I really think so. Maria, what about you? I have to agree with Rena. I think it is all going to be focused on the Senate uh, and to see how these candidates are doing, how they fare in the next couple of weeks. And then I actually think that that could also put a big piece of momentum if, if Democrats continue to do well. The Cook Political Report also said when they reduced the number of of seats that Democrats were going to lose, that keeping control in the column for the Democrats was not out of the question. So here's hoping. (laughs) That's Maria Cardona. She's a Democratic political strategist and principal at Dewey Square Group. That's a political consulting firm in D.C. She's also the founder of Latinovations. That's a news group focused on politics in the Latino community. Also with us, Rena Schaub. She's a Republican strategic consultant. And Jessica Taylor, the senator's and governor's editor for the Cook Political Report. Jessica, Rena, Maria, thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. 